Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Riverdale Recap Podcast. Today, we will be talking about the 20th episode of Riverdale Season 6, Return to Rivervale. I'm Mary Kwiatkowski, and I am by myself today. My co-host, Kirsten McInnes, has just moved, and we all know what (laughs) a pain it has been in the past when I've been moving during podcasting, so I wanted to give her a couple weeks off to really settle in, unpack. Um, We had made predictions that despite the fact that I've been living in my current house for a month, uh, Kirsten's still probably going to get fully unpacked before I (laughs) even make a dent in my unpacking. But that's part of the reason why I wanted to give her more time off. I haven't uh, taken that much time off for myself. So, you know, I know how that's been. Also, it's not like I'm giving her time off. This isn't really a job. This is just something fun. But let's, uh, let's, let's have some, have some grace. Give, uh, give Kirsten, Kirsten that time to really set in. Moving is the worst thing ever. So congrats on your new apartment, but take take some time. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about Return to Rivervale. I thought it was a pretty fun episode. There was a lot going on. We're really, really gearing up to the end of the season here. So I'm excited about <laughs> season six coming to a close. Uh, combined with all of the other shows we've been talking about recently and podcasting about, it's been a lot to have this much Riverdale happening and it's been on such a sporadic schedule over the summer. So let's close it out. But starting here with this uh, episode that I think is like, okay, we're almost there. We're almost at the war. I think next episode, maybe we're finally going to get the the war between good and evil, the war between Percival and the super kids or whatever (laughs) they're called. So let's jump into it. Let's talk about it. Of course, we start out with a wonderful Jughead voiceover. On the eve of war, we gathered in Archie's house. Percival didn't know that we were back from the dead, and that gave us a slight advantage, though he remained the ultimate man of mystery. One thing I was kind of upset with about this episode is just the fact that we didn't get the reaction to Percival realizing that everyone was back. Um, He never saw them, so I hopefully that's going to be a big payoff in the next episode. Something that I worry about with Riverdale is like, if we don't get the immediate payoff, sometimes we never get it. So like, because this was the episode after they all came back from the dead and Percival didn't see them, are we going to somehow forget about that in the next episode and Percival's not going to recognize the fact that they came back? Like, I hope we'll still get it. I mean, they're going to have to meet, so he's going to have to see them. Hopefully we'll get a big reaction. Um, Hopefully he doesn't just brush it aside as like, oh, look, they have power, whatever. But we have it here. Um, And uh, so the episode starts with like the whole group getting together, discussing what they all know about Percival. What might this final challenge be? We kind of break it down. He's a magical sorcerer getting stronger as Bailey's Comet approaches. How they know that, I'm not actually sure. That's something that Percival has mentioned, like the Bailey's Comet stuff. But they, as far as I know, no one has known that Percival was like, has any connection to Bailey's Comet. I don't think that that's been something he's mentioned. Maybe I just missed that but I, I don't I don't think that's the case. They know that he's building a ghost train that will grant him power over the souls of the dead, but they don't know how or why he's planning to use them. And that's something that we're going to figure out a lot more of in this episode is how is he going to use these souls? What is his purpose? And when we get to the Percival plot line, we can talk a lot about like Percival's endgame, what his plan is, why this is his plan. I have thoughts. <laughs> they think that he sees baby Anthony as a major threat 
to his future based on the fact that baby Anthony is like the second coming of, I don't know, I don't know if it's Christ or if it's like some sort of savior or whatever. I'm not, I still don't quite understand how any of that happened, but I guess that has to do with the whole Rivervale spilling over. And they know that the Pickens family has a long-standing history with Riverdale, for instance, General Augustus Pickens, who slaughtered the Octana tribe back in the day. Interesting that Cheryl's the one to bring this up because like, yes, that was impactful for her given her relationship with Tony, but also Cheryl was the one in that episode back in like season two or three or whenever that was, who was the one who was kind of like pro the Blossoms Pickens situation. So definitely a little bit of uh, revisionist history, or maybe it's just growing, learning from your, your past. Maybe we'll give her credit for that. But we know that there is no record of Percival in the Pickens family tree. So he came from nothing. Uh, Veronica's even going to mention like back when she had um, the guy that she killed by accident, <laughs> the guy that she accidentally poisoned, whatever his name was. I can't remember. The only name that's popping into my mind is Hermosa, but that's not right. Whatever that guy's name was, he uh, he said that Percival like, didn't have a paper trail like he never existed. So that's clearly part of this as well. Archie wonders if Percival wants the apocalypse and Tabitha thinks no, that he uh, that the apocalypse is only going to happen if he doesn't get what he wants, but they aren't sure what it is that he wants. So this is interesting because Tabitha says earlier that like when she has gone into the future that she always sees a like post-nuclear snow or whatever she says. Like it's basically that she sees the apocalypse in Riverdale. And I don't think that this is like a wider world apocalypse. I think it's small scale. It's just Riverdale. Show's called Riverdale. <laughs> the uh, end of times is only coming to Riverdale. And it's interesting here that they say that like the apocalypse only happens if Percival doesn't get what he wants because I'm pretty sure in most cases that she saw, she saw the apocalypse. So does that mean in most cases he doesn't get what he wants? Like what is what is the outcome they want? Is it that they need to stop him from getting what he wants but also stop the apocalypse? That sort of seems what it is. And then of course they wonder about their powers and the fact that they showed up right around the same time as Pickin did and Jughead says he has a theory about that but it's too early to discuss with everyone else. We'll come back to that later. So then Cheryl tells Archie about the war and this is from information she has gained from talking to Jason who finally gets to speak in this episode. Episode. She tells Archie that Augustus Pickens, uh, the general who's, I guess, Percival's like grandfather. I, I don't really know exactly how they're related because obviously he seems older, but Pickens isn't really in that, like Percival's not in that uh, timeline. So I don't really know how that works. But he's going around the suite hereafter, drafting dead souls to fight in a war against the living. I don't know what they get out of it. Maybe they get to all come back to Riverdale. I don't know. But Jason is like, oh, good thing I don't have to fight in that war anymore more now that you've taken me out of the suite hereafter. Obviously, I think that there's still going to be some sort of downside to the move that Cheryl made of taking the souls out of the afterlife when she wasn't supposed to, but I guess we'll just have to figure about that. that maybe maybe that'll come after, like if the next episode is going to be all about the war, the fight with Percival, maybe the final one, they defeat Percival and then at the very end of the episode, like the cliffhanger of the season is like, oh no, the afterlife is mad at Cheryl for what she did. I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming based on Sabrina's warning to Cheryl that this is coming 
coming back, but we'll find out. I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that the season six will only have 22 episodes. I mean, not only, that's a ridiculous number of episodes, but my guess is that's the case. And so we only have two more after this. The way that a lot of other seasons have worked is with the second to last episode being like the conclusion of whatever that season's plot was. And then the final episode sort of setting up the next thing. I would say season three is a little different because it ends with Survive the Night, which is kind of wrapping up the whole Griffins and Gargoyles thing. Maybe I'm just really basing this off of season one and two where that happened, but I don't know. We'll find out. So because the people from the Sweet Hereafter who are being drafted into this army are going to come on the ghost train, Archie wants to build a bomb to blow up the tracks. I don't really know why they haven't thought of this earlier. <laughs> like they're keep, they keep saying like, we got to slow down progress of the tracks. Got to slow down progress or just let them do it and then blow it up and destroy it. Like that's kind of what, you know, Pickens was doing when he was trying to magically put all of the diner back together. Actually, I think that was the diner ghosts, right? Who kept resetting the diner. Oh, so confusing. What is the, what is the goal? Like I forgot about the diner ghosts, but we'll have to pause that topic of what's going on with the war until the end of the episode. First, we've got to go into a couple different plots. So I guess we can start with the plot line, execute the non-believers that I'm going to say this is like the Pickens reveals his big master plan and also Veronica discovers what's been going on at the casino. I lumped them both together here. So Veronica goes to the casino to try and suss out the Pickens plan from Reggie because she thinks Reggie is still working with him. Uh, meanwhile, Percival is talking with Alice and wants to do an interview to document his success. I don't know why he's doing this for any reason other than just like to reveal his master plan. Like there doesn't serve any purpose. Maybe he's just someone who feels so like impressed with what he's done. He's spent all this time like building up to this that he wants it to be documented his story. I, I guess he could just write a book though. I don't know. It doesn't really seem to make any sense. Like again, Riverdale as a town like doesn't make any sense in context of the wider society around it. Like they seem to have no interaction with people from outside of the town. Like you would think if Percival goes through with this plan to do a live execution and also to like tell everyone, hey, I'm a magical person, you would think that like the government would get involved or something, which you would also think might overwhelm Percival because we've seen in the past it's difficult for him to mind control multiple people at one time. So if all of a sudden like a bunch of people from different towns or whatever are coming and uh, trying to figure out what's going on in Riverdale, like I don't think Riverdale can just exist as a magical place in the real world. So Percival says like, oh, we need to do this live broadcast of the Kevin, Reggie, and Marty Mantle's um, betrayal of him because that's somehow treason. I d like... I, I don't understand the laws in this town and why they can't just leave, but okay. He manipulates Alice into saying that like this will gain ratings. No, it won't. That's illegal. And I'm pretty sure it's illegal to also like broadcast murder in that way. I mean, maybe not. I don't know. Like that's... I guess it's it's one thing to broadcast like news events of like, here's a thing that happened warning that there is, you know, death in this content. It's another thing to say like, we are broadcasting a live 
live killing that hasn't happened yet, you know, because that's just murder. And he says he wants to do this to instill control and fear over the town. I think this is like the flimsiest bit for me, both with Percival and with Archie. Like Percival's always like, gotta gain control, gotta instill fear. That's how you gain control. And then from Archie's point of view, where he's like, we need to give everyone something to fight for. We need to like make them remember their core values and stuff. I don't think any of this is nearly as important as like, wait, no, like it's just magic. It's like he's he's controlling everyone through mind control and Archie is sort of countering that mind control. But it's all, it all comes down to magic for me. Like I get like if this was, you know, a, a true fictional piece of content, like yes, you know, dictators use fear and power, but Percival also literally has mind control. And that's what he's, that's like the main thing. I don't, I think if he was just had like fear, he, he the only reason he's able to do that is because of his magical powers. So Veronica gets to the casino and she sees three guillotines set up for the execution. And Frank and Sheriff Keller are like, yeah, you've been barred from the premises due to a vote of no confidence by the board. We knew that from last episode. And she's like, okay, well, where's Reggie? I need to talk to him. But they won't tell him, her where he is. So then we start the Percival interview where he says in 1580, the Ruby Pearl arrived on these shores. Okay, so doing a little bit of historical research to see whether or not we could get a close but no cigar out of this, uh, the history of New York State is a little bit <laughs> not lining up with the Riverdale history, which of course it's not. Uh, technically, European discovery of New York was led by the Italians in 1524, but they didn't have a land claim until 1609 by the Dutch. So that's not really lining up. Now, there was a famous voyage uh, to circumnavigate the world by Sir Francis Sir Francis Drake from 1577 to 1580, um, in which there was a boat called the Golden Hind. So that's probably the closest to Ruby Pearl that I've been able to find, just in the fact that it's a, a metal, like that it's a, a gem uh, ruby there with gold. I don't know. That's about as close as I can get. But either way, we're just going to have to take this as complete fabrication. So Percival was among the first settlers at near Sweetwater River, along with Asher Andrews, Blessing Cooper, Blessing Cooper, really? James Jones and Charity Blossom. I really am annoyed with the whole Blessing Cooper thing and the fact that we know that these families don't just have people named with A and B and J. Like, that's not a thing. Like, the Joneses especially, why are we going off of J? <laughs> like, for Jughead and Jebediah, but we know later that it's, like, uh, FP, right? Like, that's a, oh my gosh, what is it? Forsyth Pendleton. It's not a J. And, like, Betty, like, why do we have to go with Blessing when we know that there is Alice, Polly, like, different... <sighs> Plus, we've, we've already had the whole discussion about the Coopers and how they didn't split from the Blossoms until later. And of course, Asher, Andrews, you know, Fred, Frank, come on. If anything, they should have started with an F, just whatever. But we see all of them walking ashore and Percival's among them. And of course, Alice is like, wait, what do you mean you were among them? And he's like, I'll get to that. And she's just brainwashed. So I guess she just doesn't care. So Percival pursued rich witchcraft and sorcery, but Asher Andrews found him trying to perform a ritual on a young girl from the village in this scene played by Britta. He was tried by the council. I love how they had a council of four that somehow doesn't circle back to Riverdale until years later after the mayor mayoral structure is disbanded. So the council tried him and left him alone in the woods in like a stockade to die from starvation and exposure. His crime was trying to conjure the devil and since his ritual wasn't completed uh, he didn't succeed in that but he did get the devil's attention. The devil 
offered his freedom at the price of his soul. Percival got immortality and his freedom. So he tried to like trick the devil basically into giving him immortality so that he wouldn't have to give up his soul until he died, but he's immortal. So he spent the next 400 years gathering info from town to town, waiting to destroy Riverdale for good. Now, uh, at this point, he says Rivervale. And prior to that, he had been saying River Riverdale. So that gets a little bit confusing also. Actually, I don't know if he said Riverdale. I think he just said the settlement along Sweetwater River. That might have been what he said earlier. So at this point, he dropped Rivervale and, and Alice is like, Rivervale? What are you talking about? So on his way to town, he heard an explosion 400 years later. And that's the explosion, of course, at the end of season five. And so he realized that he has power here um, in the new town of Riverdale and that he could take revenge. So he's from Rivervale, but he's now somehow switches places and ends up in Riverdale. He wove himself into the fabric of Riverdale and we get some flashbacks of him joining the council, becoming mayor, etc. But he noticed that a lot of the descendants of his enemies were gaining powers as well. And then we get this fun montage of like Archie and Jughead and Cheryl like all using their powers. <laughs> it's like also you see Betty's face, but you don't get to see her using her power because of course not because her power is completely useless. I'm still, I'm still annoyed with Betty's power. And he thinks that maybe the power somehow seeped out of Rivervale with him. Maybe the universe wanted a more equal fight. He doesn't know. I don't know about that. I just think like he came out. It's natural that other supernatural things also came out. It does beg the question of like why people like Veronica have power when they were not the descendants though. But I think that really comes more into the next plot line we're going to talk about with Jughead and Tabitha. So Alice asks him, if you win this fight, what's your plan with Riverdale? And Percival says that he wants a land that he can rule as he sees fit, that he can uh, practice the dark arts in, a sovereign state of Riverdale, a wild, untamed land where he can control it all, even the dead. It sounds twisted, he said, but it's honest. So I don't really get the point. Like, what is he, like, why just rule for, to, for ruling's sake, you know? Like, he just wants to kind of have a prison of people stuck in Riverdale. Like, you'd assume that eventually everyone would, like, die um, if he doesn't allow people to move away because that's somehow treason. Obviously, that's not great, but I don't really know, like, what his, what his purpose is here. So meanwhile, while this is happening, Veronica manages to log in and watch her cir security cameras from her office. So I guess she's kicked out of the casino, but she can still go into her office. I, like, she's just not allowed on the floor. I don't know. So she sees the three guys who are being held in the vault. And right around that same time, Reggie's dad fakes a heart attack and Frank and Sheriff Keller open the door and they're like, quick, quick, we need to get him to a hospital, etc. And Reggie grabs Tom Keller with and like has his knife up against his throat. But Frank holds a gun on Tom and threatens to shoot him and get blood on their hands. That's literally, that's not how it works. Like if you threaten to kill your partner, that's on you. I guess maybe the point is like he could just shoot him and then shoot other people. I don't know. I think the only thing they could have done there to somehow get out of the situation is like throw the knife at uh, Frank to try and like hurt him. I'm not really sure. But then we get a really low blow where <laughs> Sheriff Keller tells Kevin that at least this execution will make him more famous than he would have been on his own in <laughs> in Broadway. That was really, that was really brutal. Like, come on, you didn't need to do Kevin dirty like that. So this made me think about like the conversation Kevin and Moose had a few episodes ago about the trauma that they had suffered based on Moose's father trying to um, dress up like the Gargoyle King and scare them and how it took a really long time for them to get over that. Um, and I feel like this is way worse, like the trauma of your father, even if he's like mind controlled, telling you like, oh, it's better that if you die, at least that'll make you more famous than you would have been on your own. Like, that's horrible. It's just really bad. Obviously, there's a lot going on 
going on here that we've talked about over the last couple episodes of like Sheriff Keller and uh, Frank and Alice just being just being mind controlled and not not being themselves, not really having any uh, purpose other than needing to give Percival some people on his side. I mean, I'm glad that Reggie and Kevin are no longer working with him, but it does it does make me frustrated. One of my biggest pet peeves in TV shows is like when the adults or the like parents in shows are like quote unquote stupid, like just bumbling fools. And this isn't much better. It's like, okay, they're just evil because they're brainwashed. It's like, or is any of this them thinking that this is right somehow? Either way you look at it, it's not good. And of course, we'll circle back to the guys in the vault in a little bit. But first, let's talk about the Cooper girls and their cleansing. So Cheryl tells Betty that she needs to go to Thornhill ASAP and uh, that she's brought some other people back. So (laughs) I assume that she doesn't tell her until Betty walks in the room because she walks in the room and sees Polly with a golden glow around her. Now, at first, I wasn't sure what this is about, but I think this is Betty seeing an aura around Polly. And so after she sees that, she immediately faints. And Betty's going to wake up and chat with Polly and says, like, she's apologizing for everything, their fight, not being able to save her or be a better sister to her. And Polly says she forgives her. And at this point, Betty, like, switches everything. And she's like, instead of talking about her reunion with Polly and, like, apologizing more or just talking to Polly about, like, I don't know, her time in the afterlife, instead she immediately switches and she's like, no, Polly, you don't understand how hard things are for me. I've been likened to the harlot of Babylon and I can't get into heaven. And Polly is like, okay, you've felt this way before. Like, I've also felt like I had darkness in me before, but you need to just let it go and live and like let grace wash wash over you. And Polly says that you need to be the vessel to like let the light in and think about being a good person since you are one. But then that night, Betty has a bad dream where she sees flashes of the trash bag killer and herself as the harlot, etc. And when she wakes up, Polly asks her, like, why do you think you're such a bad person? Which I feel like is a conversation we've had with Betty over and over and over. And Betty says that she killed her family's cat with a rock, which Polly immediately is like, yeah, no, you were groomed, you were brainwashed, you were a child, like, the cat was suffering, that doesn't count. And then Betty says, yeah, well, I also still feel awful for kissing Archie in high school and betraying Jughead and Veronica, breaking apart our friend group right before graduation. Now, this one's really interesting because Polly says she needs to forgive herself for falling out of love with Jughead. And this is something I know that on like Twitter and stuff, people were really pointing out as like, this doesn't look good for the Betty Jughead shippers uh, for Endgame, thinking like Betty is still holding this Jughead thing against herself and that Polly is outright saying like, you fell out of love with him. Which I do think was never really answered for us in season uh, four. Like I never really viewed season four or the beginning of season five technically as Betty falling out of love with Jughead. I view it as like her getting distracted with Archie and then not knowing how to forgive herself for her change in like for the thing that she did that hurt him, I guess. Like I think there's a a slight difference between falling out of love with someone and feeling like you can no longer get back to a relationship that maybe you do want in some capacity because of something you did, like the guilt there. And I think it could be both. Like maybe she did fall out of love with Jughead. I think it's hard because we never really saw that in the season. Like we saw them fight a couple times, but it was just really confusing how that season did it because it was during that whole time where there was like the Jughead's dead, they're trying to cover up his death, and somehow the trying to like save Jughead and cover up their death thing led to like Betty and Archie needing to pretend to be together. And 
on. I, I still, I need to do a rewatch of that season because I remember liking that season a lot. But as a bughead shipper, I know that that was like hard for me to wrap my mind around of like, why are we going to this place? Why are we now doing Barchi at this point in time? Like on top of the plot that should be about Betty and Jughead. Um, also, a few episodes ago when Jughead was trying to like go into people's brains and help her remember things from her subconscious, we had a lot of clips of like really good Betty and Jughead moments and moments where he was like Polly here, telling her that she's a good person, telling her that the darkness within her is within everyone. And that doesn't mean that she needs to be a serial killer or is a bad person or whatever. And I think it's interesting that we're getting both of those. And we can talk more about it when we get to the next section uh, section here of the Jughead and Tabitha stuff. But I, I really feel like the show is interestingly setting up like Betty being over Jughead, but Jughead not being over Betty. And we're definitely given both things in heavy doses in this episode. So just something that I like to track. So then Betty says that she looked into Kane after all the plague stuff happened because she was thinking more about like some of the biblical stuff that was going on. And she feels like she might have the mark of Cain, like that she's marked because of her MAOA genes. And she thinks she's evil. It's written in her DNA. Other people have even told her she's evil. And another strike against the Betty Jughead stuff is the fact that they show clips of her mom telling her that she's evil. Of course, her mom is brainwashed. And then clips of Jughead being drunk and um, telling her that she's um, a bitch and uh, manipulative and stuff from his drunken phone call, which I think we've mentioned multiple times, but there are some really interesting fan fictions out there that sort of give an alternate view of what that phone call was like from his end. But either way, I really feel like mind-controlled Alice and drunk Jughead shouldn't be your like main <laughs> sources of people telling you that you're evil. Like no one in your real life who really knows you has told you that outright, has told you that you're a bad person. If anything, the people in your real life are constantly telling you that you're a good person, including Jughead. And I don't know about Alice, but whatever. And then of course, she also thinks about the TBK, which again, does not count. He's a serial killer. So then Polly washes Betty's feet and she says the MAOA gene is gone, washed clean, that she isn't the harlot anymore. And Betty's like, what do you mean? How can this be? And then Polly says, well, someone washed my feet too as I walked into the suite hereafter. And now Betty, you can enter it as well. And Betty looks in the mirror and she sees the good golden aura around herself too. So I guess that <laughs> she's cleansed. I mean, I don't know about the whole like washing away the gene. I don't know if this is supposed to be more symbolic from Polly's point of view or if this is supposed to be literal, like she has somehow cleansed her. I don't know. I like to think of it more as sort of like a placebo. You just need to believe that it's happened and then it's happened kind of thing. But well, I guess we'll find out maybe in the next episode whether or not Betty now seeing these golden good auras around people mean anything. I think in the past we really only seen Betty see the red quote-unquote evil auras so I don't know if the gold ones mean anything else in particular. Okay the moment we've all been waiting for let's get into dimension hopping. So Jughead tells his theory to Tabitha. He said he wasn't ready to tell Archie it but he tells her that when he was in the bunker he saw another Jughead and the pop's food and other mysterious visitors enter and he thinks that he opened up a portal somehow. There's a theory that people who can read minds are actually opening portals into their mind landscapes and and that he thinks he might have done that and somehow opened a portal to another dimension. He thinks the explosion was the epicenter and that it's the connection between their powers and when their powers arrived and Percival and when Percival got to town. 
Jughead asks Tabitha to go into the other dimension with him. She's a little hesitant at first, but he's going to do that. He's going to, in the bunker, create the portal to go into Rivervale. Jughead literally says, hello, darkness, my old friend, also, when he (laughs) goes into the portal. So, I don't know. That was a little too on the nose for me personally. So they go into the bunker where they see other Jughead, the one who's writing in the bunker, and uh, real Jughead's like, hey, those are my stories. And the other Jughead, this is gonna get so confusing. The bunker Jughead from River Vale says, no, you've been writing stories based on what's actually happening in River Vale, and it's like your subconscious hearing the things that have actually happened. And this Jughead in the bunker explains this situation with the two river places, Riverdale and River Vale, and about how they started to bleed into each other. Basically, we get the whole recap from the end of the River Vale episodes. He says the universes were feeding off each other, so they split them, but this Jughead has to stay down here to keep writing in order to keep Riverdale going. I still don't really understand all this. So somehow a s- explosion created River Vale, or River Vale always existed, according to Percival, if you sort of believe his timeline. So let's think about this. Okay, so basically, there is a there is a place called Rivervale that I guess always existed. But it's sort of a magical place and things happen in it like people who die can come back to life. Um, there's a literal narrator, which is this Jughead, the one that's in the bunker down here, was the narrator, if you remember, from Rivervale. But that there's another Jughead who like lives in Rivervale. Why there are two Jugheads here, I don't know. I still don't get that. There's so much about Rivervale that doesn't make sense. But when the explosion happened, that is what severed Rivervale. And I guess in the world that Rivervale lives in, the rest of the world exists too, right? Because that's where Percival was for those 400 years. Percival's in the world of Rivervale, but in other cities and towns and countries and stuff, he's just going around doing things. And when he comes back to Rivervale, that's when he realizes that the (laughs) dimension has flipped on him and he's now in the real world, the world with Riverdale. So Rivervale is just a completely alternate universe that's existing, but somehow the explosion is what severed the tie between Riverdale and Rivervale? Like, this is kind of where it gets confusing because it's feeding off of Riverdale, but the explosion somehow messes up the feed to where there now needs to be a narrator in the bunker writing the stories. But it's like, I don't think there always was a narrator. I really need to do some research on this. This is like messing with my mind. I've never really taken the time to think about it because it doesn't make any sense and it's very confusing. Like, I think originally I thought that the Splinter universe was somehow created at the time of the explosion, but I don't think it was. I think it was just the connection was messed up. Anyway, so also I noticed at this point that all of the versions of Jughead are wearing plaid and even Tabitha has like plaid pants. So like Tabitha has plaid pants, the Riverdale Jughead has plaid jacket, the Rivervale Bunker Jughead has a plaid robe, and then later on when they go up topside and talk to the normal Rivervale Jughead, he's got a plaid shirt on. So just thought that was kind of fun. Now, meanwhile, the reason that the real Jughead has been seeing the other Jughead had come in and out of his bunker. Unclear about the Pops food and like the La Llorona and stuff coming in. But the reason that the other Jughead has come in is he said that he saw the portal open. He went through to take some of his stories for inspiration, but then he found out that they were all the same and then the portal closed. And Jughead says the portal closed because I died. It's a long story basically. So then Jughead asks about Percival and how to stop him. And they're like, oh, well, Percival is uh, not, not here right now, but like maybe you can go check the block 
Blossom Archives here to see if there's any info. Um, because the Blossom Archives had been checked in Riverdale, but they didn't contain anything. So they thought maybe like the Rivervale Blossom Archives has more information. They wonder if now Rivervale is bleeding backward into Riverdale. It was like the opposite way. And that's somehow making Riverdale darker and more supernatural. Basically the same thing that Percival said in his interview. So they want to head up topside, but other Jughead says if someone sees them interacting with their counterparts, it could create another crisis. But Jughead and Tabitha, they're a little too cavalier. They're like, oh, don't worry. We won't mess with anything. It's like, yeah, you probably will. Like, I mean, nothing ends up happening, but like, how do you know you're not going to cause any massive problems? You don't know that. So Jughead and Tabitha go to Thornhill where they're greeted by Britta who shows them Nana slash Abigail slash Cheryl because remember in this timeline, Abigail transferred into Nana Blossom who then swapped with Cheryl and then Cheryl died. So we've got Cheryl's body, but it's Abigail slash Nana. But Nana's dementia and I guess blindness and everything has now seeped into Cheryl's body. So Cheryl's kind of like comatose and isn't really someone they can talk to at this time. Jughead does try to go into this Chabagana's mind, but she's old and decaying and there's like cats and clutter in her mind. And so he can't, he can't read the <laughs> comics that are in there. I do love the name of the comics that are just like Rosie. It's kind of fun. So then Britta is like, hey, uh, you're like famous. Can I have you sign my copy of Super Teens comic? And they realize that all of the people on the Super Teens comics are themselves and they seem to sort of derive their powers um, maybe based off of this comic book that the Jughead in this world is writing. Something that I thought was interesting is like the detail here, like Betty even has the heart-shaped sunglasses on her head. Now, I don't know why she has an ST on her chest and Archie has a P. Oh, I think the ST on Betty's chest is literally just for super teens. That makes sense. Now, Archie's super teens. Um, oh, the P I think is the pure heart, the powerful, which we've talked about before, right? Like that's something that they've called Jughead or they've called Archie in the past. And I think he also like had the pure heart, the powerful um, logo thing on him um, for, I think he had like had a Halloween costume made by Katie Keene. This is like ringing a bell. So the super teens comics, uh, Archie is pure heart, the powerful Jughead is Captain Hero. In this one, he has a burger on his chest. I'm pretty sure he had an eye, like a eye on your face um, in the drawing in Riverdale. Uh, let's see, Betty is just known as Super Teen. That's kind of lame. And Veronica's Miss Vanity. Oh, that's horrible. Why would you want to be Miss Vanity? So Archie's Super Teens was a reoccurring feature in Life with Archie between 1965 and 1967. And then it was revisited in Archie's Super Teens, which were four issues from 1994 to 1996. Archie and friends become superheroes and battle a host of bizarre supervillains in a series of tongue-in-cheek adventures. Uh, so we've got Pure Heart the Powerful. It says, when Archie attempts to tap into the pH factor, a superpower only accessed by those of Pure Heart. Pure Heart is super strong, super resilient, and can fly using his jet boosters. However, his powers only exist as long as his heart is pure, leading to embarrassing situations such as him losing his powers after an appreciative kiss from a damsel in distress causing the car he was holding to fall on him. Oh my gosh, it's horrible. <laughs> um, super teen is Betty um, and she twists her magic ponytail and they're very similar powers to pure hearts. That's kind of lame. Captain Hero, these are horrible names, appears when Jughead recites a magic incantation. Uh, teeny weeny magic beanie pointing toward the sky. Give me muscle, vigor, strength, form a super guy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Unlike pure heart in super teen, Captain 
Captain Hero has a arsenal of bizarre weaponry like exploding bubblegum and demonstrates other powers such as super breath and transforming his head into a steel drill. Um, Evil Heart the Mighty is Reggie using a variation of pH factor instead of his villain instead using his villainous half to transform into a superhero with pure heart's powers. So uh, great is Evil Heart's villainy that it actually proves a strain to revert to the lesser evil of Reggie Mantle. While Evil Heart antagonizes the other superheroes, he will team up with them to battle a common foe. And then in the 1990s, a revival of super teens had also included Miss Vanity, which was Veronica, um, and her powers are roughly similar to super teens, although her outfit is more provocative. <laughs> Great. She appears to have a supersonic scream like Black Canary. And then Mighty Moose, who is Moose with the gift of light and augmentations to his already formidable strength. All of the heroes have inherent mind foggers that cause all civilians to forget the super teens' secret identities, even the teens themselves in some cases. Oh my gosh. Okay, hopefully you all found that interesting. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. So anyway, that is a comic connection, super teens. But apparently the arch nemesis was Percy the Perverse in Rivervale, and that's where we get Percival from. And Jughead and Tabitha are like, okay, well, we need to talk to the other Jughead, the writer one, alone. So Tabitha puts the veil Tabitha in a time loop while she's taking out the trash, which apparently is part of her powers now. Um, and then they take the other Jughead to their house and they chat and the River Vale Jughead believes. He's like, oh yeah, I believe in the multiverse and stuff. This totally makes sense of what's happening. So good that this Jughead's on board. And he says that he feels like the powers were good fits, extensions of each of their characters' personalities. At least this version of the Super Teens has a more variety of powers and it's not just all the same ones. Uh, the River Vale Jughead says that Percy came from a, rec a recurring nightmare he had and that, um, that in the end, Percy's going to kill them all and all the Super Teens die. And they're like, well, that's a horrible ending. And I think they're starting to worry like, oh, if that's the ending in the comic books that Jughead's writing here, is that going to be the ending for us as well? Um, and this is where we recall from uh, the Mr. Cypher episode or whatever it was called, Lou Cypher, that one. From that episode of Rivervale, Jughead made a deal with him to only write grim stories. And so they're like, okay, well, maybe we need to go talk to Mr. Cypher and see if we can somehow fix this situation. So they go to the casino where the guardian angel um, from Tabitha, like he is fighting with um, Lou Cypher uh, in a chess tournament. I guess that's not really a fight, but whatever. They're having a chess tournament where Cypher is going to win. Now at this point, I don't know why they don't go talk to the guardian angel. I feel like maybe that would have been more helpful, but they go talk to Cypher and he's like, oh yeah, I'm kind of annoyed with Percival because the whole immortality cheat, that always catches up to you, especially when you made a deal with your soul. So it seems like he's not really on Pickens' side. He's like, well, the cosmic rules prevent me from interfering anymore directly with you. But then they start to read his mind. And so he's like, okay, I'll just tell you, like the land around the diner is the thing that's important to Percival. It's not the diner itself. Apparently that is the land where Percival was left to die, which is the site of a hell mouth, which um, is a thing that I've heard a little bit about from Supernatural, but apparently it's like an idea that it's an entrance to hell and um, churches used to be built over them to sort of stifle their dark power. And Pops was also like kind of doing that. It wasn't a church, but it was a place of peace and community and good. And so that was built over the hell mouth, but they moved Pops and played right into his hands. So they go back to the bunker and Tabitha and Jughead are like, crap, this is not good. I mean, uh, evil seems to be winning in all cases. We've got the situation with um, the 
you know, comic books that Jughead's writing here that are uh, going to have Percy win, that um, Cypher beat the guardian angel in chess, is not a good omen. And now we haven't really gained any power against Percival here. So they go back to the bunker and Ethel's annoyed with the bleed because she's like, this shouldn't have happened. Like we severed the ties uh, with the explosion. Like what happened? And they ask, like, did anything happen around the explosion that you can think about? And Jughead's like, yeah, well, I do remember Betty saying that she had received a phone call telling her to get out of the bedroom. And that's where Ethel gets really mad. And she's like, oh my gosh, that was you, the Jughead who's in the bunker. And she's like, you're so weak. You're still in love with Betty, even though she doesn't love you anymore. It's over between you two. And you still felt the need to call her to save her. So very interesting dynamic, right? Like we've got clearly at least one version of Jughead still into Betty. And that's like completely spelled out for us here, which does make me think like, is that a direction they're going? Is Are we somehow going to, I don't know, like I, I like Jughead and Tabitha together. I'm just not really sure what we're going to do with all of this, but I think it's definitely intentional. There's there's something going on with all of these hints, or at least I'm going to pretend there are. Um, I, I don't really understand this, right? Like he called Betty and told her to get out of the room. She doesn't, she doesn't end up getting out of the room, but because Archie develops some sort of power, that's, he's able to protect Betty and that's what happens. Um, so I guess the call is what call caused the spill between the two universes somehow. It wasn't the explosion, like the explosion was the thing severing them, but the call is what helped with the spill. I'm not really sure. And I don't really know, I guess the call wasn't really necessary. Like I think originally we thought the call was necessary because that's what saved Betty and Archie, but it's not what saved Betty and Archie. So I think that's where it gets a little more confusing. Anyway, then we get back to the ending of the episode where Jughead and Tabitha are back. They're explaining to the others everything they learned that others informed Jughead and Tabitha about the execution plan. And so Jughead's like, okay, let me go quickly create a portal in the vault and helps Kevin and the two mantles escape. Then Archie blows up the train tracks. So at least that's good. And Reggie is like, oh, I'm just sad that I didn't get to see Pickens' face when he went into the vault. Now, don't they still have the security videos? Like, can't they just watch that? And we saw Veronica watching those earlier. So I think they could technically look at his face if they wanted to. But right around there, they all get a group text from Percival Pickens. And it's an image of a blindfolded Alice, Frank, and Tom Keller on stage by the guillotines. And they're like, oh my gosh, we've got to do something. But then they get another text that says that they were all already executed for treason. Percival has started the war. So begs the question, are they actually executed? How are they going to get them back? A lot of brainstorming here. I think for all intents and purposes, they are executed. But I think because Percival wants control over the dead as well through the ghost train thing, I think maybe they will come back in some form. I think they will. I and mean, we've already brought people back from the dead. So I think it's it's likely that that could happen. I think in the next episode, we are probably going to get a lot of the battling between the groups. So maybe that'll be some of it. I don't know. I think it'll I think it'll be interesting for sure. I think that we're going to have a lot in the next episode. I'm, I'm really more curious about the finale episode of the season more so than just the next one. But we'll see. Yeah, we'll see what happens. It was a long episode, a lot to talk about. Thanks for bearing with me, even though it was just me going on this week. Uh, definitely hard to, <laughs> definitely hard to just keep up the podcast when it's just me. But uh, hopefully, hopefully some people found this interesting. Title of the episode, Return to Rivervale. Um, I think it's just, that's, that's what it is. We're returning to Rivervale here. There's, I mean, there's a lot of content out there that's returned to something. There's return to um, Witch Mountain, etc. But I don't really think any of those are directly related here. So it could be a reference to a lot of things, but I think it's just a reference to we're returning to Rivervale. <laughs> Not really any new characters, but we did talk a lot about a lot about comic connections uh, with the super teens. 
friends. I think that was probably the most interesting stuff for me thinking about this episode was just the whole super teen connection. Um, I think I want to at the end of the season, if we don't get any more clarity in it, I want to do like in our finale recap, a whiteboarding of exactly what happened with the whole Riverdale, Rivervale, Percival split call timeline kind of thing. I'm sure that exists somewhere, but I want to think about that a little more in depth. Oh, most normal person of the week. This is hard. This is really hard. I mean, because everyone was like time traveling or jumping through uh, portals or putting people in time loops. <sighs> Not None of these people seem particularly normal to me. Um, Veronica wasn't very abnormal. Archie was barely in this episode and pretty much all Archie did was just blow up the tracks. So I feel like I could see a reason for maybe it being Archie. He was just like, you know what? Maybe I should just take down some of the work Percival's been doing. That was really all he did. I don't think it's Betty because she's been annoying me with her whole like, I'm darkness. Like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, Obviously, it's none of the people who've come back from the dead. Yeah, I think I'm just gonna have to give it to Archie. I'm sorry. This is what happens when I'm left alone with the podcast. All right. Well, that's about all for this week's episode. We're really closing in on the end of the season. Thank you for joining me solo. And we'll be back next time for episode 21. Until then, you can follow me online at Frail Mary everywhere. And you can check out some of the fun things I've been doing over with the Big Brother coverage over on Rob Has a Podcast. You can also check out Kirsten over there as well. She's been doing some updates. Um, you can also check out on Post Show Recaps, The Umbrella Academy, season three coverage. We just finished wrapping up. If you haven't watched The Umbrella Academy, definitely go watch the first three seasons and then listen to our coverage of that. It was pretty, pretty fun. And we did like a recap show that'll be out at the end of this week as well um, to kind of go through like all the feedback and questions and thoughts that we had there. Of course, you can follow Kirsten everywhere at Kirsten Said What. You can check out the Twitch streaming she's been doing. Uh, we've both been playing a lot of Goose Goose Duck over there as well. So definitely check that out on Puya streams. Kirsten has also been covering um, pop culture and sort of drama and fun things like that over on Mess Magnets. So definitely check out the Mess Magnets feed or check that out over on Rob has a podcast. You can also check out Bojack Horse Pod with Kirsten and Lindsay Wilson as well. So lots of things. I think possibly even Love Island coverage. That feels like a thing that might be happening. <laughs> I feel like there's always some love hot dummies on island shows that uh, Kirsten's covering. All right, everyone. Thanks for hanging with me. Until next time. Teeny weeny, magic beanie, pointing toward the sky. Give me muscles, vigor, strength, form a super guy.